Dear listeners, welcome to the second episode of our podcast, Further Together. My name is Vanessa Alves Pereira from the International Cooperative Alliance, the global apex organization established in 1895 that unites, represents, and serves cooperatives worldwide. And Further Together is your rendezvous inside the cooperative enterprise model, its identity, and its difference. In case you're wondering, here's what you should know about cooperatives. It is an association of persons united voluntarily to meet their common socioeconomic, cultural needs and aspirations through a jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise. Cooperatives enterprises have known to exist since as early as 1769. However, the first with a set of established rules and political values can be said to have been created around the mid-19th century. This includes the Equitable Society of Rushdale Pioneers, established in Manchester, England in 1844. There are now 3 million cooperatives of wealth, representing a billion individuals, and they are a source of income to 10% of the world's employed population. Today, we are gathered at Humboldt University in Berlin to discuss cooperative law. Jeff and Santosh will now take over the discussion with their guests. Enjoy the podcast, keep on cooperating, and see you next time. Greetings from Berlin, where today we're at the Humboldt University, where the ICA CCR European Research Conference has just concluded with the participation of over 160 researchers, young scholars, teachers, professors, and more. And cooperatives in Germany, like in many other parts of the world, have their roots in being used as a tool against feudalism and towards the rights and ownership of the downtrodden. Sectors such as agriculture, banking, buying, marketing and other services such as energy or crafts and freelancers, housing, consumers, all of these sectors are covered by the cooperatives in Germany. In 1847, Friedrich Wilhelm Raffeisen created the first aid association in Westerwald and in 1864, he founded the Hedersdorf Loan Society, the first of the cooperative model in the Raffeisen tradition. So on that note, my name is Geoffrey Moxham, and I'm the research officer at the ICA EU Partnership for Cooperatives in Development, People-Centered Businesses in Action, and uh, hosting this episode alongside me is uh, Mr. Santosh Kumar, the legislation coordinator of the ICA. Hello everyone and welcome in to this uh, edition of Further Together, which is themed on the value of cooperative research in legislation and development. And in the next 25 minutes or so, we will talk to our guests about cooperative research and cooperative law, and know more about ICA's ambitions in the domain of legal framework concerning cooperative development. We have the pleasure of welcoming Professor Sonia Novkovich, Professor at the St. Mary's University and Chairperson of the ICA Committee on Cooperative Research, and Professor Hagen Henry, who's at the University of Helsinki and is the chairperson of the ICA Committee on Cooperative Law, as well as our colleague, much closer home, Ariel Romanto, the research coordinator at the ICA EU Partnership on Cooperatives in Development. Welcome, everyone. Professor Novkovich, we see you are one of the leaders in the field of cooperative research today. How was it when you first encountered cooperatives, and what was it about the field that kept you going? Ah, an interesting question. Well, first of all, I'm really glad to be taking part in this. It's great to be here. 
I did not start uh, to research co-ops. I, I lived in them first. And uh, actually, I was uh, my, my background is in uh, self-managed firms in uh, the former Yugoslavia. So when I was growing up, I participated and you know, heard about them all the time. But also, I studied economics of self-management. That, that's my first degree. And as a student, and then after graduation, I worked in self-managed firms. Uh, so the, the whole economy was labor-managed. Uh, so this is w what was natural you know, growing up here. And then I went to Canada for my graduate studies and continued to work on labor management and labor ownership and labor-owned firms. So it was, you know, in, in research associations, of course, you hear about cooperatives that are bunched together with any labor-owned kind of enterprise. So uh, my self-managed firms were equal to worker cooperatives uh, in economics and worker and producer cooperatives. And so I started in that association. And what kept me going and what got me into looking at cooperatives in general is that uh, a group of practitioners in Canada brought the master's degree to my university, St. Mary's University, master's in management of cooperatives and credit unions. And when that uh, hit the faculty council, I was absolutely interested in being a part of, of teaching in that, uh, in that program. And there I learned about the cooperative principles, values, all the stuff that economists don't talk about. We talk about ownership, decision-making, control, right? But principles, values, all of that stuff and how it actually influences decision-making really is what keeps me going because there is something new I learn pretty much every year. And this was 2002 I'm talking about, so it's been a few years, so I'm hooked. Thank you so much, Sonia. And Professor Henry, uh, how about yourself? Would you mind telling us a little bit about for our listeners, uh, your background and how you first became also engaged and involved in, in cooperatives? Well, actually, being here in Berlin is quite interesting for me because I was born very near to, to Berlin, uh, in the then uh, still existing German Democratic Republic, but then raised uh, in the very southern part of Germany, southwest, and uh, raised in the, in the countryside where I think cooperatives were so much. Uh, a natural part of, of life that you didn't even, you know, think about it. It was a normal thing. And I never had any, in my formal education, the, not even the word cooperative was mentioned. I'm not talking about my field, which is cooperative law. Now, how did I start? Uh, that was by coincidence. I don't know whether it was just a coincidence, but the, the matter was that I had known a professor of cooperative law, Professor Münchner, who called me one night and he knew that I was looking for you know, ch a change in my professional life. I'd been with the Federal Ministry of Economics for quite some time and had nothing to do with cooperatives. And he said, well, what are you, you, know, what are you planning? And I said, well, actually not really a lot. And he said, you have to work on cooperative law. And that's how it started. So I, I was a normal lawyer, so to speak, uh, in Germany. But again, I mean, nothing, there was nothing about cooperative law in that. So I, I started with the assistance of Professor Münchner, I must say, I mean, he gave me all the hints, but it was basically self, uh, I'm a self-trained cooperative lawyer, so to speak. I started by reading, and then very quickly I, by, by consulting. So that, uh, when I look back, I think I was a bit too brave, but that's how I probably learned it in the hard way, discussing with legislators, government officials, etc., on cooperative law. So that's how it got started. Now, how did I, why did I stay with that? Well, then, Obviously, you probably understand that you found it fascinating, but sometimes say, and it's a bit shocking for some years, it's not actually about cooperatives or cooperative law, my interest. I'm obsessed by the question of diversity. 
so I think, as we all know, this is not a very common business or enterprise model. Some time back, I think many had the feeling it would uh, you know, disappear altogether. And I think just for the diversity issue, that really keeps me going. Thank you, Professor. Uh, inspiration indeed. And I think we'll get to a few points that you mentioned during your introduction in the later part of the podcast. Uh, Agil, uh, welcome to the podcast and what brings you to Berlin? So I came to Berlin to present some of the research that we are doing in the ICAEU partnership, which is an international development program that we are leading together with all the ICA offices. And so in this particular context, I was presenting our latest report on cooperatives and peace that we have published in March this year and that we have produced with our uh, Cooperatives Europe Development Platform through our uh, expert working group on development issues. And I also presented what we are doing on the legal framework analysis research uh, together with uh, colleagues from the, the other ICA regions. So, of course, also there are the main reasons for coming, but I was also hoping to learn a lot more from other presenters and, and get gain more insights from the country. Thank you, Ariel, and thank you, everyone, for uh, introducing yourself. We have this next uh, section of the podcast, which is titled First Questions, and it's going to as it sounds, ask first questions in, uh, around the theme of the podcast. Uh, well, the first laws on cooperatives in Germany were created in 1867, according to a few reports that we found online. The first of the federations were created in 1870, and the first comprehensive legal framework concerning cooperatives was created in 1889. Audits to ensure professional management were introduced in 1930, and the German law on cooperatives underwent a few changes over the course of time, with 2006 being a landmark year that adopted several principles of the law governing European cooperatives at the transnational level. So, Professor Henry, can you please tell us if there could be one answer to the question, what is cooperative law? To, to put it in a nutshell, really, I would say it's the translation of the cooperative values and principles attached to the what is a cooperative, of course, into legal rules. And that is taken, of course, from the ICA statement on the cooperative identity. When we, when we say principles, we often uh, do not mention that the statement has three parts, but I, that is just the jargon we use, but we, actually we are referring to these three parts, definition, values, and principles. And this translation, uh, I think, is the, the most uh, important, and uh, this is much more complex than probably most listeners would assume. There is no straight line to be walked from the corporate principles to the legal rules. Uh, and, and Professor, how critical is it for the cooperative movement, the whole uh, notion of cooperative law? If the law is uh, well made, in the sense I, which I just mentioned, I think the, let's say the cooperators actually should not be concerned. And that is reality. Nobody actually, apart from lawyers, is sort of directly interested in knowing a lot about cooperative law. That's not the issue. It should provide a framework in which the cooperators themselves fill with the statutes and that would automatically mean in most countries that this is within the law and then they don't have to worry about the law. That's more something for specialists and of course in case of conflict and then also it's not only about the corpus themselves, that's what we sometimes don't mention as lawyers. Law in a nutshell, I say it's not for corpus, it's on corpus. There is this link to the whole society or the whole state or whatever community is. We should keep that in mind. Thank you, Professor. And Ariel, we understand that you were an important member of the team that responded to the grant application that resulted in the ICA-EU Framework Partnership Agreement 
Could you tell us in a few words when, when the team was discussing legal framework analysis and how you progressed on it once the partnership was signed? First, I would like to precise that most of the credit for that is not really with me, but more with my manager, Mark Noel, who really carried all the, the application process and I was just there as backup. But this idea came to us as we were having some uh, CEDP members quite active in development projects centered on supporting cooperatives from the Global South on legal issues. So basically giving some technical assistance in countries in which the cooperative legal framework was either inexistent or was not exactly beneficial to the development of cooperatives. So there was this expertise from our network that really brought home the fact that there was a real need for uh, cooperatives worldwide to have this enabling legal environment and that this was crucial for the, the movement to thrive and for cooperatives to be able to develop. So this is a bit how this idea came to us to embed a research component really focused on legal framework analysis that would be both done at the global level to fill in any gaps in, in knowledge on the field and even more importantly that would be really practical and really hands-on so that our members could benefit from this, uh, this analysis and could use it as a tool for advocacy. So basically this was a bit our starting point um, to do a research quite, again, operational, not so much academic. And so, so far we have been working on it mostly from the, to, to set the methodology together with all the colleagues from the other ICA regional offices. And this has uh, been a very interesting process to try and find some uh, common tools that could be applicable in any context because we really have this global scope um, that we, we aim to cover for the legal framework analysis. And so on this we have now the methodology ready and we have already completed the first uh, pilot study. Now we are moving to the full-scale implementation and that's going to be uh, running until the end of our uh, European project. So this is more or less where we stand. And of course we are uh, looking forward to share the first results soon with the ICA membership and of course any interested stakeholders. We will soon have the first report set on the online platform for everyone to be able to consult and hopefully to make as also a legal report an easy tool again for the membership for their own advocacy. Great, thank you so much Aria. And a uh, question for Professor Henry, how do you perceive the general direction of uh, cooperative legal research in the future? What kind of trends or topics will we see emerging? Well, I, there are several trends and first glance, they are really contradictory, and I'm talking about what I observe now, colleagues, as well. One is that more and more laws on cooperative national level, they would refer nowadays to the cooperative principle in different modes, you know, just a reference or a bit more. So this seems to indicate a, a good direction, so to speak. Then on the other hand, we see in complementary legislation, tax law, competition law, accounting standards, whole series, where it seems still to go into the opposite direction. And what we shouldn't uh, underestimate is the power of regulators, so not the legislator, but regulators, to intervene with their rules. And uh, I think the focus probably will shift towards these areas to see that they are not counterproductive in our tribe to ensure that we get where we want to get, which is, repeating now, a translation of these principles into legal rules. So a mixed picture. Fantastic, thank you. And uh, so we see that there are a lot of perhaps new fields that cooperative research could branch into. And so uh, on this point, I'd like to bring in uh, Professor Novkovich. 
as the global chair of the uh, Committee on Cooperative Research of the ICA, could you tell us um, a little bit about the main activities that are happening now and perhaps also a little on the future directions? Sure. In terms of research interests, CCR, the Committee on Cooperative Research of the uh, International Cooperative Alliance, is mindful of what the ICA is doing, where it's going, what its strategies have been, what efforts the association actually puts into strategizing from the blueprint down to today and uh, on the principles, the guidance notes on the principles. All of these things are important. The data that's being collected by the ICA is important to researchers to use and, and then draw their own conclusions and see what they want to explore. But we in the CCR, we see a very diverse researchers so you have historians, you have sociologists, you have all sorts of researchers who are really researching membership and member-driven organization to democracy, to economics, to you know all sorts of things. We have clear gaps, uh, however, I want to draw to my field, which is economics. We have to go back to the drawing board on the theory, economic theory of cooperatives. Right now we are using, we continue to use the, the investor logic which is underlining the economic model that is then translated into the management models as well and accounting and so on. So it's really from the economic theory we see influence in all these other fields and we need to really go back and take a good look at it and think, okay, is the governance really about principal-agent relationship? It may be in some cases, but not in all. So what can we contribute there? Is you know, And so on. So we need to unpack certain findings that are out there now and take a good look at what our departing point has been. That said, there are new fields, of course, and we've seen it in this conference. There are new kinds of cooperatives, new needs for old members, uh, but also new members being drawn into this, uh, this model. It's clear that uh, the importance of the cooperative model is, is now coming to light at this point in history. And even though co-ops have been counter-cyclical and they've been entering uh, different crises, as we've heard in this conference, at different points in history when crises were happening, I think now is it's really an interesting model in the context of, of this you know, zero marginal cost kind of thinking, where you have to either monopolize the markets or you really have to distribute both ownership and, and, and benefit. And so these kinds of models, democratic models, are really of interest now as a solution to these sorts of developments and trends. And Ariel, someone who presented research output from the ICA-EU partnership at this very conference on cooperatives and peace, would you be able to elaborate on this paper and uh, what made your team pick the topic of peace and cooperatives and what the main findings were? I'd be more than happy to. This topic was chosen in agreement with our CDP members, so our development platform, as we realized that they had a number of projects that either themselves or their partners were carrying on in this field. And so we thought that could be an intriguing topic to investigate into. Another uh, reason for this was also that peace building is an important uh, topic for the EU uh, institutions, so we thought that could be relevant to bring them a bit more information, some further insight on the topic and what cooperatives are doing in this field. And relatedly, we thought that this was a, a topic not necessarily well known by our, our policy contacts, but also the wider public and uh, civil society partners or external partners in general. Most of the time when we mention this research, people are very surprised to know that cooperatives are indeed having an impact on the topic of peace building. So all those reasons led us to launch this research. And I may elaborate a bit on this, uh, what we found out. We uh, had some very interesting uh, case studies that we collected that we uh, transposed into key findings and recommendations. And some particularly interesting insights that I would like to share today is on the role and the impact of 
cooperatives in building trust within their communities, bridging uh, gaps and uh, encouraging dialogues between groups who have been at odds or who have been in open conflicts. So we looked in this research at different forms of conflicts, uh, some more latent and some really in open, open wars. Um, cooperatives really had a role to play in bridging this dialogue. Another point that was really interesting for us to investigate into is how cooperatives were able to both have an impact on addressing humanitarian needs uh, for areas of conflict, but at the same time providing development opportunities. So in a way addressing the humanitarian development nexus, and that we thought that they were particularly well placed to do that. So relatedly, they were really helping to stabilize a conflictual environment by providing decent work opportunities and social and economic inclusion. So this had a great impact in preventing conflict, but also in rebuilding, in doing the post-conflict reconstruction. This was something that was really a recurrent feature in our, uh, our research findings. And finally, one point that I would like to stress is uh, many of those cases had cooperatives acting in multi-stakeholder partnerships. And this was really interesting to see how there was a great complementarity between cooperatives' actions and actions from other types of actors, such as local authorities, for instance, or uh, NGOs. So basically, those were really those projects that we studied really brought together different uh, strengths from different types of partners and uh, figure out that COPs were really uh, working well in this type of partnership. Thank you to all our guests on this uh, panel this afternoon for responding to these questions. We will just break for one minute now to bring you a short message on the upcoming Global Conference for Cooperatives and Development taking place in October this year in Kigali in Rwanda. And we'll be back very shortly to learn more about the interesting aspects of cooperative research. Thank you. Join us at the Cooperative for Development Global Conference in Kigali, Rwanda, from the 14th until the 17th of October. This conference is open to all members of the International Cooperative Alliance and is organized with the government of the Republic of Rwanda and the Rwandan Cooperative Movement. It will offer all participants the possibility to share, discuss, advocate and showcase how cooperatives contribute to achieving the United Nations 2030 Agenda. Don't miss out on inspiring speeches and presentations from Mrs. Vandana Shiva, one of the leaders and board members of the International Forum on Globalization, and also a prominent figure of the Global Solidarity Movement of Alter Globalization, but also Mr. Patrick De Volter, Principal Advisor for European Social Policy at the European Political Strategy Center, Without forgetting Mrs. Rima Nanavati, head of the Self-Employed Women Association of India. She is also an Indian social worker who is known for her humanitarian services and work with the Global Commission on the Future of Work Institute within the International Labour Organization. And of course, many more. Take the opportunity to learn about women empowerment, the preservation of the environment, eradication of hunger and poverty, decent work, ethical value chains, affordable housing, equality and peace, and innovation in entrepreneurship. And to follow our discussion on social media, use the hashtags COPConference19 and COPS4Dev. Hello again. Ariel, to continue our conversation, would you tell our listeners the main features of the legal framework analysis is questionnaire? Any particular aspect of this research that interests you personally? 
this question. It's really structured in three main sections. So the first one is really centered on description of the cooperative legal framework in place at the country level, so in each country that we analyze. So this one is really descriptive, it's really about highlighting the key features of the law from different perspectives, including from an organizational perspective, looking at other issues such as taxation and so on. The second aspect is really trying to assess whether this legal framework is rather supportive of cooperatives or rather detrimental put it in, a, let's say, perhaps a black and white terms. So we are trying to have this, uh, this evaluation. And the last part of the process is to include recommendations for improvements. And on the two aspects, so both the assessment and the recommendations, this is a part we also bring in our members. So basically, we try to get input from member organizations set in the countries so that we will include their own perception, take into account their own needs with regard to any changes necessary for the, the legal framework in place. So roughly this is how we structure it. For me, the particularly interesting aspect of the research is really building on the point that I just mentioned on trying to get members' input on board. It's particularly important to ensure that what uh, we are producing in terms of analysis reflects the members' point of view and take into account what they really need. The other aspect is the, this objective to have it quite accessible. This has been really our motto for the research, that we want non-lawyers to be able to read those reports and to really understand the analysis. So we tried really to, to focus on this accessibility. Also, in terms of making the results of our research freely available online, on this online platform, which is uh, currently in preparation. Again, with the hope that it was useful for our membership as a tool for advocacy and also with our political partners that they would be able to learn from this analysis. And the last point I wanted to mention uh, that is really important for me is the, the fact that this is part of a global harmonized process conducting together really with all the ICA regional offices. And this was, I think, a particular interesting exercise to, to conduct with all the colleagues from other regions so that we would have a tool and some outputs really produced with a common mindset. And this is really showing the strength of the movement at the global level. This is really showing that we are working together. Thank you, Ariel. That was really useful. And good luck with the implementation process. And we look forward to the website where we can access freely the legislative frameworks of several countries around the world. Jeff, you work closely with Ariel, well as colleagues from other ICA regions on legal framework analysis, among other research outputs. Would you please share your experience on the LFA or the legal framework analysis in particular, and also any notes that you want to give to the young researchers interested in cooperative law? Sure, thank you, Santosh. And uh, I feel incredibly privileged to have had the opportunity to work on, on such a project on cooperative law, it being a topic for which previously I was not so familiar with. And I have to say I've learned a, a huge amount about the field since starting only a short time. So it builds on this point that Ariel was mentioning about accessibility, and I hope that through this, building a little bit of a bridge between the true experts that we have in the field and hopefully young researchers who are interested, I think that that could hopefully lead to more people becoming interested in cooperative law and its many aspects. In addition to that, we have had at this conference and we have had at previous ICA-CCR conferences a very promising network of 
young scholars. And it, it's clear that the cooperative community is very open-minded and a very welcoming arena to bring in new expertise and new ideas about the cooperative field. And I think there's many exciting topics that still need to be researched. So we, we need young researchers to be involved in this field and they need to come in with a, with a critical mind. And so yes, I, I would say to anybody out there listening who would be very interested, you should join us. Thanks, Jeff. And are you planning on giving any subsidies to young researchers to come and research and present? Well, <laughs> that's a very tough question, Santosh, but uh, you never know. I would say keep your eyes on the ICACCR website. I think whatever might be available in the upcoming uh, conferences that we have planned, both at the end of this year and potentially next year, there may be some good opportunities for new, for new researchers to get involved. And I think as the popularity of the topic grows, we'll hopefully see more educational institutes and universities putting resources into this topic and bringing more people in. That's nice to hear, Jeff. So, and, and with that, I have a, a question for Professor Henry. It's related, in fact, to, to our work on international development. And uh, really, this we've seen a big shift towards integrating the Sustainable Development Goals as a framework into our research. And given the international nature of the research exercise on cooperative law, could you just uh, give us an overview about public international law and also potentially how the SDGs might fit into this framework? It's a challenging question because I'm one of those probably very rare lawyers who have expressed several times the opinion that we do in fact have already public international cooperative law. Now that needs to be discussed as any opinion in law is constantly discussed. But I think one cannot deny the fact that we have now a sufficient number of, let's say, indications of behavior. And in fact, in public international law, this is one criteria, behavior by governments or parliaments in the direction of accepting that there are these principles called cooperative principles and that they should guide the legislator in the broader sense. And now this is, a, there I think is a real trend. And more and more we gather now evidence from either court decisions or new laws coming in, making a reference to the cooperative principles, etc. So the list is becoming longer, that's for sure. But apart from that, this, um, and you have good arguments, of course, to challenge this opinion, then I say, well, it doesn't really matter whether what we are talking about is already or not public international law, as far as the cooperatives are concerned, because we have a number of binding international instruments, just want to refer to the two binding human rights covenants, which I think would allow us to argue in the same way as I'm doing. Because if you look at them, you will find that this is enough to set up cooperatives in the way we understand them. And then you take on board issues like sustainable development. Sustainable development for a long time was not really an issue for lawyers because there was nothing in, in law. But this time is over and it has been over for a longer period than we assumed. As far as I could find, the first decision by the International Court of Justice on this question dates from 1997, saying that there is now a legal concept of sustainable development. So for any lawyer now to say there's nothing you know, in the legal field, I think this would not be correct. And then you go down, so to speak, in the hierarchy, how we see law, you would find an increasing number of constitutions, for example, national constitutions, which now say something about sustainable development. So it's in, the, it's in the arena now, and at least you would say, well, you cannot disregard this as a legal, let's say, legal concept. It has to be taken on board. And that is actually now, I think, in addition to what I said at the beginning, that we try to translate the cooperative principles into legal rules, this comes as an additional aspect, because 
there is in this notion and this concept of public international law on sustainable development, there is an emerging obligation of legislators to take this on board. Be they, they might work on cooperative law or other issues, cannot just disregard this aspect, which, by the way, would link, I think, sort of directly into this question of peace. That's great. Thank you. And a question for Professor Novkovich. In terms of sustainable development, how do you see that being perceived and represented at the moment by the cooperative research community? Is there a lot of awareness or do we need more work on the subject of sustainable development? It depends on the field. So in international development, clearly that's the pillar of what they're working on, but how many international development studies student uh, and researchers are actually aware of co-ops is another issue. But there is the field of international development studies is definitely a place where the two coincide, if you will. On the other hand, in the social and solidarity economy field where cooperatives belong, there is increasing awareness about the impact of social and solidarity economy on sustainable development. And of course, the work of the ICA is also informing people who follow what the ICA is doing. But researchers are looking to sustainable development, of course, if they're already in the field of sustainable development, or I should say they're looking to co-ops as a business model that may be helpful in that effort. But in the cooperative world, what we are seeing now is, as in social and solidarity economy, more and more effort to define the impact of cooperatives, to look at indicators that will show the impact of cooperatives and differentiate from the impact of other kinds of businesses, and that sustainable development goals as a framework are being looked at because they offer a whole bunch of indicators that need to be brought down to micro level. And so there is a lot of work in that field on impact, on indicators, which means that there is work in accounting and there is work on quantifying the values and principles and how they inform the indicators and now cross over between the principles and SDGs. Uh, some of the work of the Center of Excellence in Accounting that we have at our university is looking at that. But there are many practitioners also and cooperatives themselves who are looking at this issue. Increasingly, you see cooperatives in their annual reports cross over their reporting to their members with SDGs. And this is where then researchers can also follow us and, and, and help in, in pushing that agenda. So we see more of it. We don't see enough of it. We're in whatever, year four now. Uh, cooperatives should be much more present than they have been uh, for a variety of reasons they have not been both on the practice and on the research side and I think the argument can be made that that's what we do we are agents of sustainable development so why bother <laughs> researching it kind of thing but of course there are diverse cooperatives and diverse institutional frameworks and regulation and all of that stuff that impacts whether cooperatives actually do things on sustainable development and they do them differently than somebody else. That's great, thank you very much. And I'd like to pick up on one point. Would there be any specific institutional points to hit home about what we can do to strengthen cooperatives as actors to achieve the SDGs? For example, from governments or from education absolutely. institutions? Absolutely. The work that UNRISD, the Research Institute in Social Development, and the Task Force on Social Solidarity Economy, that's exactly what they're doing. So absolutely, we can contribute both the governments, but also the ICA and other regional organizations and you guys doing the work that you're doing. That's the platform where we see more focus on what cooperatives contribute to SDGs as well. So yeah, so that would be definitely an obvious 
place to go. Another for cooperatives themselves is to get engaged with this process. Thank you, uh, Professor Novkovich, and thank you everyone for answering this second round of questions. And since we're running out of time, we'll straight go to the final comments. And this question is directed to both the professor on the table. We'd like to know your general experience at the ICACCR European Research Conference, and if you could highlight some of the good papers and presentations you heard in brief. There were so many in law that uh, Professor Henry has to go <laughs> after me, first. <laughs> or well, first, whatever you want to pick. Yes, There'll be a lot yeah. he has to say, yes, so go for it. Lawyer's <laughs> attitude, and especially when you're trained not as a lawyer per se, but as a judge, we're trained not to make any judgment call we really have analyzed all the facts and uh, etc. So I would uh, reserve my judgment for some time later. But nevertheless, yes, as you experienced now during the conference, there was a large number of lawyers present, and we had four two and two in parallel sessions on Coptic law, which led, I think, to something we had not intended to do, to be so present, so overwhelmingly present with the subject. This was not the intention. We rather, and we had a short discussion on that, would like to see this a bit mainstream, because you can attach the legal issue to any other subject. That's why it's also so difficult to well, grasp properly. But it's not a negative critique. Of course, when you organize this, you're very happy that you got this response. And not only those who presented, but also who came to, to listen, which is a completely different situation as we had it some years ago. So the number of papers on corporate law has increased steadily over the past, at least you know, the time I've been going to these conferences. And that's a good sign. And uh, it relates to something you discussed earlier. We see not only gray people, you know, gray-haired uh, people like me now, but in the majority was young, much younger. And that is exactly this, what we tried to do, because between those young lawyers now, haven't been present here, and my generation, there is a one generation gap. There are no lawyers who, not a sufficient number, at least a critical mass of lawyers who had an interest or have an interest. So if we can really now bridge this generation, then, then we have achieved more than you know, any, any individual evaluation of a paper. So I think that, that's for us the main pride. And for me, it's always a challenge because you only get to attend one session at a time. And there were so many parallel sessions, so that's always a challenge in conferences, right? So I can't say that I can highlight papers that I have not heard. <laughs> but what I do want to point out is that I think the thought behind the keynote addresses showed, and it was really well done in terms of the quality of the keynote speeches and the relevance to, for the subject matter and how then conversations could fit in the sessions. So I thought that was really very well done and well received by the audience, it seemed. We've learned from each of the speakers and the exchanges and interactions were great. Another great point was that there were many practitioners here, both in the co-op movement, but in cooperatives themselves as well. And that to me is key to cooperative research. It's in my personal preference and opinion, it really cannot go without practice. Practice is a step ahead of researchers, so we need to be knowing the directions that, that are really relevant and important. And we've heard at this conference from enough practitioners to actually get that sort of feedback. So that was great. Thank you, professors, for your uh, insights into the conference. Uh, we'd like to remind you all again of the upcoming Global Conference on Cooperatives for Development uh, at Kigali, which will uh, showcase a series of prominent speakers and sessions dedicated to cooperatives, international development, and related themes. Thank you very much to all our 
kind panellists for taking part in this uh, excellent podcast, wrapping up the uh, ICACCR European Research Conference 2019 at Humboldt University in Berlin. So thank you to Professor Sonia Markovich. It's a pleasure to have you Thanks with for us. having me. Thank you very much, Ariel Romonto. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today. And finally, thank you very much, Professor Harvey Henry. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. So, uh, and thanks to all of the listeners here. There will be the next ICA CCR European Research Conference taking place in Athens, Greece in July 2020. So we hope to see everybody there. And of course, last but not least, thank you so much, Mr. Santosh Kumar, the Legislation Coordinator of the ICA, for organising this fantastic podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff, for being my partner in crime. We see you next time on Further Together. Thank you.